one of the nicest introductions I've ever had. So. Um, yeah, we're talking church history, and uh, it's encouraging to see lots of folk um, come. Uh, as I said in one of the earlier talks, I'm not sure that church history is the thing, certainly not the thing that most students come to SMBC to study. Uh, I think many of us have got um, uh, memories, perhaps, of uh, when we were having to learn dates at school, and uh, that was really all that we associate with history. But um, in many ways, I think history is absolutely essential for us as Christians because it gives us a context in which we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And uh, it helps us to understand the shoulders that we're standing on. And it helps us also, I think, to um, uh, be able to look at the things that they did well and look at the things that they didn't do well and hopefully um, learn from both. So will you join with me in prayer as we pray for ourselves now? Heavenly Father, we pray that you might help Augustine of Hippo, so long dead, to be alive for us today, uh, that uh, in learning more about his life and uh, the ways in which you dealt with him, that we might be encouraged to persevere in the Christian life. And we pray for this in the most precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, there is an outline. Uh, whoever did the outlines up, they make them look really flash, so I want to say thank you for that. Normally when I do outlines, they sort of start off kind of slow and then fizzle out altogether, to paraphrase Neil Young, but these things come up, they look great, so thank you very much. But you'll see there the grace in the life of Augustine of Hippo. Um, hands up, who's, who's actually heard of Augustine? Now, there you go. Um, and know a lot about him? <laughs> That's a relief for me. Um, he's been described as the greatest Christian since New Testament times. Uh, and the greatest man to ever write in Latin. Uh, he's been described as the bridge between the optimism of the classical world of ancient Greece and ancient Rome and the whole period which is known as the Middle Ages. Uh, but the person who's called him the bridge also described him as the dark genius of imperial Christianity. Uh, for a thousand years, though, Augustine's been the most was the most popular Christian writer, uh, certainly in Western Europe, with a constant flood of his writings coming out. And I think today you see his significance in that just about everybody claims Augustine as their own in the Christian faith. So you've got uh, Protestants, and we Protestants, we like Augustine of Hippo, which is why we're doing a talk on him now. The Roman Catholics, they like Augustine of Hippo. There's lots that they rely on in Augustine. The Orthodox, uh, they love Augustine of Hippo and they draw a great deal from Augustine. Uh, regardless of your, your brand identification, uh, Augustine of Hippo is seen as having someone who has something to contribute to, to, to the way in which you work out your salvation. So influential is he that um, the Reformation, which we're going to look at uh, tomorrow, the last, last talk, Martin Luther and the German Reformation, which is the the historical event that spawned all of us in terms of denominations. Uh, one writer, F.F. Bruce, has described the Reformation as an Augustinian revolution. He said it's the revolt, it was the revolt of Augustine's doctrine of grace revolting against Augustine's doctrine of the church. And so the Reformation, he had it covered. He was on both sides and both sides were drawing. And in many respects, there's some truth to that. So I want to tell you a little bit about Augustine, uh, a little bit about the way he grew up and what kind of person he was, how he became converted, 
and uh, then talk about one particular uh, uh, struggle, if you like, or controversy that he had, which was all about grace. Uh, so if you've got notes there, you may find them useful to, um, to follow them along in the, in the booklet. Um, he, he wrote a, a, he was very helpful in one sense, he wrote his own biography, so an autobiography, it's called The Confessions. Um, you can get sort of little editions in paperback like that for, um, for less than 20 bucks. And uh, he wrote the entire Confessions, which is sort of 300 odd pages, he wrote the entire thing as a prayer to God. And so all of the confessions is Augustine talking to God about Augustine's life and reflections on God's dealing with Augustine and the things that God taught Augustine and the way in which his life unfolds. So it's a really lovely way of, um, of getting to know the man is just by reading through his confessions. And I'm going to give you a bit, a bit of background. He was born in 354, so that's 4th century. Christianity is, uh, is legal by this stage. In fact, it's not only legal in Europe, but it is actually quite dominant. It's, it's edging towards the point where it's going to become the, the, the official religion of the, whole, of the Roman Empire. Uh, there have been a succession since about 312, there's been a succession of Roman emperors who have identified themselves as being Christian. And people within the church, leaders within the church, are actually are increasingly being given all kinds of responsibilities beyond leading the church, lots of social and political responsibilities within their region. So we live in Australia where there's a separation of church and state, and so we don't expect that the Anglican Archbishop of Sydney is likely to be elected the next Prime Minister of Australia. We think that those two things don't fit together. We have a separation. There's no national church. But this is a period of time, and it's been the case right down through church history, where we're quite aberrant here in Australia, we're unusual. But where, where increasingly there's a, there's a mixture of church and state, and so the church is being called upon to exercise all sorts of functions of the state. Uh, and uh, that's important for understanding how things worked out for Augustine. So 354, he's born. He's born in North Africa. So that's what he is. He's a North African. Uh, somewhere or in the town of Fagast, which is basically in eastern Algeria today. So that's basically who Augustine was and where he came from. Uh, his father, Patrick, doesn't appear to have been a Christian, at least until he was baptised on his deathbed. Uh, but his mother, on the other hand, is a very, very famous lady. Her name was Monica. And uh, she's famous because she was uh, one of these very determined mothers who believed that Augustine was going to get into the kingdom of God by hook or by crook. And she was extraordinarily prayerful. And he writes a very, um, uh, a very devoted account of his mother, Mother Monica. But you can't help reading the account and realising that she was a suffocating woman as well. Uh, suffocated Augustine with her love and was a woman who was always there, not only to urge him on in Christ, but to urge him on in ambition and always there to make sure that he lived the life that Monica thought was the best life for him to live. Uh, so she's, she's a very, and we'll hear, hear a little bit more about her in a, in a moment. Um, he was precociously clever, uh, and so it was an expensive thing to educate people in those days. Uh, no real public school system, and so there was a lot of money invested in Augustine and in getting him educated. Uh, he was sent off to another town in order to, um, in order to study. Uh, 
he does that for a time that his father dies and so the family uh, fortunes are, um, uh, uh, take, take a downturn and so he has to come back for a while and then more money is raised and he goes back in order to uh, study. The ultimate goal is to become a lawyer but he ends up becoming a teacher um, partly through circumstance which is a job that he loathed with every fibre of his being. So we've got teachers here. Um, yeah, he's got some interesting things to say about students back, back then. Um, while he's away uh, as a 17, 18, 19 year old and still studying, he takes a concubine. Now that's a, what you would call a, a, a regular lover. So we would probably say, say um, uh, a partner, but someone with whom they have a regular relationship, but, but they're not married. She's a woman of very low social standing in North Africa, and they live together for 15 years. They have a child together until Augustine leaves her because he proves, she proves to be a liability to his career. And with his mother's urging, Augustine gives her away and sends her back to Africa in order to engage in marriage with a much younger woman. We'll come back to that as well. As I said, the original plan was for Augustine to become a lawyer, but he can't do that. And so he goes away, comes back when his father dies, and while he's back, he gets in with the wrong crowd. Uh, and he describes in, in his confessions the experience of his own sinfulness. And he uses it by talking about stealing pears. You've got a very famous story about a group of boys who would go and steal pears from an orchard that was nearby. But his reflections on it are interesting in terms of his understanding of sin. Because what he observes is that when he, when, when he stole the pears, he said, we didn't actually eat them. In fact, we weren't hungry. And in fact, they weren't very good. So he said, why did we do it? Well, we did it because it was wrong. That's why we did it. That was the fun part, was knowing that we were doing something which was wrong. And that, in some ways, is, is going to be a part of Augustine's life for a considerable period of time. In many ways, he's a very modern man. Uh, he goes through uh, the, 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 the sort of gutter to glory type conversion experience that uh, we often hear about in churches. When I was growing up in Port Macquarie Church, that was the thing that everybody had. Uh, it was a gutter to glory type. It was a time when there were a lot of surfers getting converted and uh, they, they were, were aficionados of magic mushrooms and various other things and their conversion stories were very spectacular. And Augustine has that kind of a has that kind of a conversion story. So if you're like me and you've got an extraordinarily dull conversion story, uh, well, live with it. But uh, for, for Augustine, he's got a really interesting one. So uh, so that, that's what we're going to hear about. Okay. While he is uh, working as a teacher in North Africa in Carthage, which is one of the big Roman cities in, in North Africa. He gets involved with a weird and wonderful group called the Manichees. They're a religious cult or sect, and they started out of a, out of, were started by a man called Mani, M-A-N-I. And uh, they have this, in many ways, what Mani wanted to start was a religion which would incorporate religious beliefs from just about everybody. So just cherry pick a little bit of everything and put it together into this thing called Manichaeism. For our purposes, what he rejected was the entire Old Testament. And the reason he rejected the Old Testament is because he was teaching that material things are bad. So anything that's physical, the body, 
uh, a love of food, a love of pleasure, all of those things are evil. And the God of the Old Testament created the material world, so therefore, according to many, he must be evil. Most of the New Testament also he rejected, but Jesus at least got incorporated into Manichaeism as a prophet. It believed, it taught, that, that reality consisted of a constant struggle between good and evil. And uh, God was good, but God was locked in this titanic struggle with evil and not always got the upper hand. So it was a fairly even contest. So that's why we have evil in our world. It's not. Uh, it, it's, it's simply because at that point when evil is in the world, evil has been conquering God, according to, to, to Manichaeism. As a part of this struggle, lots of God got shattered and scattered all around uh, the universe. It gets weirder. Um, it all got scattered all around the universe, and bits of goodness or godness turn up in us when we are born. And so it's as though there's little bits of God trapped inside of us waiting to be released. And according to the Manichees, one of the ways that, they, that those bits of godness could be released in order to, um, uh, to, to, to rise up and to join with the big God was through the foods that you eat. So they had very strict food laws. Um, particularly, they believed that melons and cucumbers were very strong on God. I've no idea why they pick melons and cucumbers. Um, I've had a close look at them. We've even grown cucumbers. Open them up. There's no real sign of but But they believe that melons and cucumbers. So if you ate a lot of melon and cucumber, you would get more of this godness inside of you. Now, there are two, two categories of, of manichees in Augustine's day. There were the manichee elect. They lived totally celibate lives had very strict food laws and they were hoping that their divinity would be released through their lifestyle. And then there were the, if you like, the also-rans, the B-team, and they were called the Manichae Hearers. They were required not to be celibate. It was accepted that they couldn't be celibate, but they had to try to be faithful to one woman and to have as few children as possible. And their hope was that when they died, they'd be reincarnated as a... Manichae elect. Now Augustine, no surprise, was a hearer, not an elect. His sex drive simply wouldn't hear of him ever becoming a part of the elect. He took up with them though because they seemed to provide an answer to this spiritual yearning that's going on inside of, of Augustine. Uh, right at the very beginning of his uh, confessions, he says that we are restless until we find our rest in God. And uh, it's a very famous statement. And what he's referring to is his own restlessness that appears to have been there from a very young age where he wants God, and he wants to know God, but he doesn't know how to find God. And so he locates in the manichae some kind of an answer that he hopes might somehow satisfy this, this restlessness that he knows can only be satisfied by God. Over time, he becomes increasingly disillusioned with the manichees and realises that they, they simply don't answer all of the questions that he's wanting to ask, and he drifts right away from them. So there he is. He's living in Carthage. He's living with a woman. He's engaged with this religious set called the Manichees, and he's teaching students. He hates being a teacher. 
He describes in the confessions about how revolting the students are. Obviously not like students today, but, but, but how, how badly behaved they all are. That they run around in mobs and they keep rushing into classrooms and rushing back out, back out again. They never listen, they never pay attention. And he has obviously no classroom management skills at all. And so he makes up his mind that he's going to leave Carthage and he's going to sail for Rome. Now, when his mother hears about this, she says, well, that would be a great thing for us to do. Uh, <laughs> now, Augustine wasn't exactly keen on the idea of us going to Rome together. He was planning to take his, um, his partner with him, but he wasn't planning to take Monica, his mother. And so she follows him down to the port. And he has this lovely description where he, he describes how he says to his mother, the winds aren't right to sail yet, Mum. Why don't you go and have a lie down in the hotel and I'll call you when we're ready. She goes off to the hotel. He hops on the ship and sails straight for Rome. <laughs> and he looks back and he says, how could I have done that to my mother? But he did. Um, perhaps he knew that that would be almost no problem from Monica's point of view. She just caught the next ship after him and chased him down to Rome. She was not going to let him go for nothing. He arrives in Rome and he finds to his horror that students are just as bad but in a different way there. This time, he's there as a teacher and in those days, you, you were paid individually by the students. And so if you were good, you got lots of students come and you were paid well. If you weren't good, then you didn't get any students come. He found that what the habit that students all had there was that they would enrol with a teacher, but before payday arrived, as a mass, they would move across to another teacher so that they didn't have to pay. And uh, that infuriated Augustine, and in the end he thought, I'm not going to put up with that. So he then moves um, further north to Milan. So he's heading his way up Italy, which is at the time is, the, is, is one of the major centres of the Roman Empire. And it's while he's in Milan that he comes across a Christian preacher called Ambrose. And Ambrose is the Bishop of Milan, so he's the head honcho. Prior to that, he was the governor of the region. So he shifted from politics over into, uh, into the church. Augustine goes along because he is fascinated by Ambrose's preaching. He's never heard anyone quite like it. He's particularly fascinated by his rhetoric. So. Uh, Am Ambrose was clearly someone who managed his material well, he was interesting, he was articulate, he was everything that Augustine admired about uh, the way in which someone should speak, and so he was drawn to Ambrose just for that. But as he sits Sunday by Sunday under the preaching of God's word from Ambrose, he increasingly God is doing a work in Augustine's life. And it's when he and a friend of his, a lawyer, are um, sitting in their house and uh, by this stage his, um, his, his concubine, his mistress has been sent back to Africa. Um, he's engaged to a young girl who's underage and so while he's waiting for her to grow up to be old enough to marry him, he can't wait in the interim so he takes another mistress to keep him going. And while this is happening he still has this restless thirst to be right with God and yet whatever he does, he can't, simply can't, uh, do anything to satisfy it. Let me read to you a little bit from, um, um, from what he writes in the, uh, in the Confessions. He talks about coming close to God, and every time that he came close to God, he would crash down to earth again. 
So he says, I was astonished to find that I already loved you. The confessions you've written is a prayer to God. But I wasn't stable in the enjoyment of my God. I was caught up to you by your beauty and quickly torn away from you by my weight. With a groan, I crashed into inferior things. This weight was my sexual habit. But with me, there remained a memory of you. So he says, I would get close. I would feel like there is a God and God is somewhere there. And I'd begin to be caught up in some kind of experience. But nothing had ever come of it. Because in the end, he says, my lusts are so powerful. And it wasn't only the lusts of the flesh, his sexual habit, but it was his lust for power as well. He is incredibly ambitious and driven by this relentless desire to make a mark for himself, to make a name for himself. And so he speaks about these, these, these twin habits, these twin addictions, these twin um, powers over his life that constantly make it impossible for Augustine to ever do anything about becoming a Christian or getting right with God. He wants to, he sees that he needs to, but he can't because he's not prepared to give up either. It's a familiar story, isn't it? He is so acutely aware by this stage of the gulf between himself and God and yet unable simply by the power of his own reasoning, by any decision that he makes to cross the bridge somehow. The crunch comes when a friend calls round to visit he and his friend, the um, lawyer Olympias. And the man who calls round is a Christian. And he notices that Augustine has a Bible on the coffee table. And he starts talking about, um, uh, about Christians and starts to tell Augustine about all the different people who are getting converted. Augustine is very distressed by all of this because he keeps asking the question as his friend is talking, saying, how come they're getting converted and I can't get converted? How come they're becoming Christians and me with all my brains is still, are still unable to become a Christian? And so he goes outside in great distress. And when he's outside, he's sitting in the garden and he can hear some children over the wall playing. And as they're playing, they're playing some kind of game which involves a song. And the song simply keeps repeating, take up and read, take up and read. So it's some kind of children's song. He says, I don't know what it was. But he said, when I heard those words, I decided that what I needed to do was to take up the Bible and read. So he says, I hurried back to the place where Olypius, his friend, was sitting, and there I put down the book of the Apostle. I seized it, opened it, and in silence read the first passage on which my eyes lit. Romans 13, verses 13 to 14, not in riot or drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lusts. Now I have to say, if somebody said they wanted to become a Christian, I'm not sure I've taken to Romans 13, verses 13 to 14, as being the optimum verse for them to go to. But God knew what he was doing because Augustine said, I neither wished nor heeded to, needed to read further. At once, with the last words of this sentence, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. And he was converted. It's as simple as that. Um, the lusts of the flesh were controlled. He became a monk. 
and lived a celibate, celibate life for the remainder of his days. He gave up ambition and left Milan, headed back to North Africa, where he wanted to become a monk, quietly living, but eventually was persuaded to become a priest and he became a bishop, the bishop of the little town of Hippo. And that was the way in which Augustine lived the remainder of his days. This remarkable uh, transformation that took about simply by reading one part of the scriptures as God laid hold of him and drew him into his kingdom. There was nothing that Augustine was able to do. He tried absolutely everything, nothing had worked, and yet at that moment as he read the scriptures, God simply transformed him. He took away the very things that were keeping him from God and opened him up and brought him straight into his kingdom. In the course of his life, and it was a long life, he wrote quite extensively uh, and he was engaged in a number of controversies. And the one that I want to talk to you about is the controversy with a man called Pelagius. Uh, and the movement that he spawned was a movement called Pelagianism. Uh, and it's particularly important because it's a controversy that centres around grace. Um, Pelagius was a quiet man. He was a monk from Britain, probably Scotland or maybe Ireland, who lived an austere and blameless life. Trained as a lawyer, he spent several years in Rome where he gathered quite a reputation in Christian circles as being a fine moralist. That is to say, someone who gave Christian guidance, but someone who spoke out very strongly against what he saw as moral laxness amongst people. His teaching places enormous emphasis on moral responsibility, your responsibility to live well. His teachings understood Christianity to be a powerful movement for social good. He thought Christians should be generous with their money, compassionate and kind. But he believed in the potential of humanity to reach great heights. As far as Pelagius was concerned, we are born a blank slate. And evil only arises in us because we are corrupted by the flaws that we see around us in our own society. Remove the flaws in our society and we will all of us be quite capable of living perfect lives. Um, I've only ever met one perfect man in my life. Uh, it was in Blacktown and I was shopping in Jules, the, um, the supermarket, which I think is no longer around these days. Uh, and um, the man in front of me was perfect. I know he was perfect because he told me he was perfect. Uh, we, we started talking and he said he was a Christian. I said, oh, I'm a Christian too. I said, that's terrific. And he said, yes, he said, I'm, I'm a perfect. He said, I haven't sinned for years. I said, really, that is just extraordinary. I said, I said I've been a Christian for many, 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 many years. And I said, I'm still wrestling with sin. And he said, no, no, he said, you just need to have the Holy Spirit. That's all that you need and you can be perfect. I said, really? I said, that's extraordinary. Um, after it was his turn to go to the cash register and so he paid and then I followed him out a few minutes later and I noticed he was loading all of his groceries into his car which was parked in a no parking zone <laughs> <laughs> outside while I trudged around to where you were supposed to park. Um, so it seemed to me that perhaps his definition of what amounted to the perfection may well be slightly different to mine. But as far as Pelagius was concerned, it was possible to be perfect. It was possible to live a life 
because of, of perfection because we all start as a blank slate. He heard Augustine quoted as saying, and there's a quote in your um, in your notes, thou commands continence, grant what you command and command what you will. Someone asked me last night what continence I meant by that. Um, I guess it's mainly used in sort of nursing home contexts these days, I know. Um, but it means self-control. Um, so you can see where the connection with the modern day meaning is. You command self-control. You command obedience, in other words. You command that I should, I should live the way that, I, that you want me to live. Well, grant me the ability to do that and you can command anything you want. Easy for me. Command anything you want, God, but you better give it to me first because I'm not doing it. Why? Because I can't do it. That was, that was what Augustine was writing. And you can imagine why, given his context, his constant struggles with lust and his inability to control it, and yet it's only when God intervenes and controls Augustine that Augustine's lust is, 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 is dealt with. But when Pelagius hears that, he says, that's terrible. How are you going to get people to live good lives if you keep saying things like that? just encourages people to think that they don't have to try. It sounds like cheap grace, moral irresponsibility, and a very dim, poor view of the human condition. How do you get motivated for self-improvement if that's the way that you're taught? And so he was very angry at Augustine for saying this, and he takes on Augustine in a very public dispute over what he has um, uh, over what he has written. As far as Pelagius is concerned, Adam himself was not created with any positive holiness, but he wasn't created with any negative aspects either. He was simply neutral, with a capacity for both good and evil, and with a will that was utterly free. Adam chose to sin. That was the choice that he made. But the next person who came, Seth, or whoever it might be, Cain and Abel, uh, they too had a choice. They too were a blank slate. They too were neutral. They could choose to do what was right or they could choose to do what was wrong. And so subsequent generations, right down to yours and mine, as far as Pelagius was concerned, there is no guilt from Adam. There is no bias towards sin. We are each of us born utterly neutral, a clean slate, able to choose to do right or wrong. All that has been passed down from, from Adam has been a habit of doing the wrong thing. Break the habit and everything will be fine. Now, as far as Augustine was concerned, that was just complete arrant nonsense. And he wasn't going to take a backward step at all. The influence that we've already seen of his early years had taught him, along with the teachings of Scripture, that in the biblical doctrine of sin, Adam fell, and in Adam we all sinned. So that we are born with a bias, not towards good or even neutral, but a bias, according to Augustine, towards sin. So we're like a bowling ball. It's always got to weight one side when you bowl it along the green, it will always tend in one direction. Our tendency, according to Augustine, had he played lawn bowls, is that we will always tend towards sin. As I said this morning, the Dylan quote is from his saved album. I was blinded by the devil, born already ruined, stone cold dead when I stepped out of the womb. Now that is just pure Augustine, if you pardon. 
I'm not sure whether Dylan understood that, maybe he did, but that is Augustine. So that we have a bias towards disobedience, we are born under judgment. And so as men and women, we are powerless to save ourselves. What we saw this morning, that we are dead in our transgressions, dead in our disobedience. So how can we be saved? Is there any hope for us? As we saw this morning, we are saved by God's grace. By God so transforming our will that we desire to be at peace with God and he brings to us faith so that we trust in his Saviour, our Lord Jesus Christ. Without God's help, he said, we cannot by free will overcome the temptations of this life. And that's why we pray, don't we, for the Holy Spirit to be at work in us to make us more like Jesus. We, we pray that he would bear his fruit in us. What are the fruit of the Holy Spirit? They're all the good things that God wants us to be. Love, joy, patience, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all of those things. And as far as Augustine was concerned, we are utterly dependent for our salvation upon God, upon the complete grace of God in our salvation. And as far as Augustine was concerned, not only is that the teaching of Scripture, but it is also experientially authentic. That is to say, it's consistent with our own experience. Um, and you know what it's like when you get converted. At the time, you're making the decisions for yourself. Um, you're hearing the gospel being preached, you're thinking it through, you're making a decision. All of that is true. But then as you grow up in the Christian faith, you look back and you realise the way in which God has been at work to change you, the way in which he put people alongside of you, the way in which he changed your attitude so that you were hungry to know God, so that you were restless, so that you did realise this conviction that you were sinful and that you stood in the hands of an angry God and that there was nothing, none of your good works that were good enough to offer to God. And you think, where did that come from? It came from God mercifully at work in you. And so Augustine uh, opposed uh, Pelagius. The controversy went on and on and on and on and on for a great many years. All sorts of, um, of people got involved in the dispute. Um, a man called Jerome, who was a Christian monk living in the desert in um, the Middle East. Uh, his, Jerome, by the way, is the man who translated the Bible from Greek into Latin. So if you've ever heard of the Vulgate Bible, which was the Latin Bible of the church for a thousand years, that was the work of Jerome. He was a grumpy old bloke, but, but Jerome uh, weighed into the debate on Augustine's side. Uh, his view was, don't worry about the issues, just go straight for the man. So he described Pelagius as a cor corpulent Scottish dog. And uh, as far as Jerome was concerned, that was the end of the argument. So I won that one, let's move on to someone else to lay into it. But as far as Augustine was concerned, our wills before God lays hold of us will always choose to do what is wrong. It's not that we're capable, incapable of ever doing good. Of course we are. We talked about that this morning. There are all sorts of good that we can do. But we are incapable of turning ourselves to God unless God first turn ourselves to him. Uh, and I take it that's why we pray for people to be saved. At that point, we're being thoroughly Augustinian. Uh, why would we pray for someone to be saved if we don't believe God is the one who does the saving? Uh, and that's all that Augustine was, uh, was, was teaching. The debate rolled on. Eventually, the church rejected Pelagius and uh, embraced Augustinian theology. 
Uh, and it's interesting, we'll come tomorrow and we'll have a look at, um, at Martin Luther, but Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. And uh, so in his heritage is Augustine. And when Martin Luther was wrestling with the question of how can I be right with God? Uh, is it by my works? Is it by my religion? Is it by the things that I do that I can accumulate sufficient points so that God, when he weighs me in the balance, will say, hmm, just enough, I think you're in. Is that how I'm saved? Or is it by grace and grace alone? that nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross of Jesus I cling. There's no good works that I've contributed, but simply the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Martin Luther was wrestling with that, he went back to Augustine to ask himself the question, what is it that Augustine had to say? And what he found was that Augustine said exactly that, that it is all of grace, God's goodness, God's kindness, God's mercy, God's grace. Now that raises all sorts of difficult questions, doesn't it? Uh, it's, we've, we've been dancing around the whole issue of predestination, um, the whole issue of free will, and how that works its way out. Uh, I just want to say that when, um, as I told you this morning how I was converted, I went down to Sydney to live and went to university down there. And in my first year at uni, um, I came across the doctrine of predestination, um, just from reading through the scriptures. And I hated it. Uh, I couldn't stand the thought of it. And uh, I had, it made no sense whatsoever to me. And uh, I have far, far too many members of my family who are not believers in the Lord Jesus too, for that doctrine to ever sit comfortably with me. And so I got angrier and angrier at God because I simply didn't understand uh, how that could be and how God could be loving if he allowed that that should happen. Someone explained to me the the theological argument that all of us are under judgment, all of us have chosen to do what is evil, and therefore all that God is doing is choosing to save some, to have mercy on some. So we are the ones who have condemned ourselves by our rejection of God. I understood that. But it still was such a difficult doctrine to, to believe. And the only thing that finally um, um, dealt with it was uh, when I realised that the one thing that I needed to do was to accept that I will never understand it, and to this day I still don't understand it. Why God would choose one and not another. Uh, why he would choose to have mercy on one but not have mercy on another. But what I do know is that God is good and God is kind and God is loving. And I know that because I look at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have no idea how what Augustine was talking about works or why, but I know that God is good and that's sufficient. I know that God is loving and that is enough because God did not spare his own son. But to save me, a sinner, thoroughly respectable, but a sinner nonetheless, a rebel against God, who was so acutely aware, even as a 17-year-old, of things that I'd done wrong, and who still, as I grow older, am acutely aware of the failings and the flaws and the sin in my life, that God, who is rich in mercy, did not spare his own son, but gave Jesus as the only way by which I might be saved, the only way by which you might be saved. And therefore, I think I don't understand all the stuff. I'm about to say what I've been talking about. I don't understand um, the doctrine of predestination. Um, it still sits most awkwardly with me. 
but I know that God is good and I know that God is loving because the cross of Jesus tells me so. And therefore I have a choice. I can either leave that with God and trust him with his goodness or I can rail against it. And I choose to leave it with God because I know that God can be trusted because the cross tells me. So that's all that I want to say about um, about Augustine. I don't know whether you want questions or not. Is that a good thing to do, Scott? Or not? Yeah. Yeah, we have five minutes of easy questions. That's that's, that's what Scott said. <laughs> There was, if you like, um, reconciliation. So she went back to. Sorry? I'll repeat the question. Um, Did Augustine ever make amends with the woman that he'd lived with for 15 years and had then rejected? Was there ever any kind of action by Augustine? Um, She went back to North Africa where she became involved in the celibate life. So in a monastic life, Augustine went back with his son, and that's what he became in, involved in. And in these days, that's quite normal for a married couple to both decide to go to separate monasteries and live out their lives for the rest of their days separately, celibately, in, um, in a monastery. Not at all uncommon. And so there's a sense where, it, for Christians of the era, it normalised the relationship. Uh, so yes, yes, he found it very difficult for, to make the decision originally that he made. Um, but there was a measure of of compatibility and, 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 and reconciliation there. What about his son? His son died at his 18. Um, really sad. Um, but his son went back and was going to be a part of the monastic community with Augustine, but died as a very young man. Mm. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, it was all Augustine's fault. Uh, and that, that's partly true. Um, what, the other big controversy that we didn't touch on was Augustine and a group called the Donatists. And the Donatists were um, a, a schismatic, so they, they divided from the church. And eventually, because they wouldn't come back into the church, eventually Augustine settled on the idea that the church should go to the state and say to the state, will you please punish these people? these Christians, because they won't come and unite with us. And at that point, the church shifted gear and became a persecuting power. It's an appalling thing. Augustine had all sorts of rationalisations, and he didn't anticipate it getting as bad as it, as it got, but he set in train the process by which it got as bad as it got. And so over a period of, uh, of, of a, over a thousand years, the church did two things. It increasingly became allied with the state and in fact claimed at times to be superior to the state. And at the same time, it lost that thing which the church loses far more regularly than we even lose our keys, and that is they lost grace. It's the first thing the church loses is grace, over and over and over again. And the first thing we revert to and this just confirms Augustine, our sinful natures, the first thing it reverts to is good works and religion. 
And so the church lost grace, not entirely. It's not that God left himself without a witness for a thousand years, but as an institution, it lost grace and increasingly focused on religion and religious activities and good works, and it became a, man, a, a means of social coercion. So that by the time of the Reformation, you have a state that is, that is heavily coercive and at the same time uh, has, as an institution, lost hold of grace. And the Reformation, which is why we're doing Martin Luther tomorrow, is, is God restoring institutionally to grace. As I say, grace obviously converted people you know, over that thousand year period, but as a church, as an institution, it was, that was not what it was teaching or practicing. Thank you.